0: Well, we'll return this morning to the second part in our, our series to get us ready for the summer, which is the calling and the conflict of Christ's kingdom. What is our calling as believers? What do we do with this new life, this new Savior, this new King that we've been given by God? Do we hoard it and keep it to ourselves on Sundays? How are we supposed to been given? And to begin with this morning, I want to take you first to Matthew twenty-six, twenty-six. And Matthew explains to us as we get to the end of Matthew that the night before Jesus was crucified, Jesus took bread and after blessing it, broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, take, eat, this is my body. And he took a cup and when he had given thanks to them, saying, Drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. And what I want to draw your attention to to start this morning is... This idea of covenant that Jesus makes reference to during the Lord's table or communion. What is this covenant that Jesus is talking about? And what does it have to do with you and I? We don't typically talk about covenants a whole lot. And yet Jesus is using this term covenant to help explain the Lord's Supper or what we refer to as communion. And the term covenant, our English term covenant, comes from the Latin, from two words put together, convenir. And those of you who know French and Spanish, you know it's coming together or being brought together. And in the Old Testament, the word for covenant is berit, and it refers to a bond, something that ties us together, something that connects and binds two or more parties who are bound or united together. Very specifically, they're united by a promise. Now, there are many different kinds of covenants as you read through scripture and you go through the history of the ancient Near East. And probably the covenant that we're most familiar with is the covenant of marriage. And it's a covenant between a husband and wife. And it involves a public ceremony, an exchanging of vows, a sign, the exchanging of rings, a legal document, typically, that's signed by two witnesses. And typically, it's also celebrated or associated with a meal, maybe even a dance, depending on whether you're Baptist or not. And all of this, however, as we think about that marriage covenant, what does it all mean? What does it all point to, this meal, okay, this celebration, this certificate that's signed by witnesses, these public exchanging of vows in a ring. What does it all mean? What does it all point to? Are we just getting together for a party? Well, obviously not. This is nothing without what has happened in that covenant of marriage, where a man and woman are united together by God as one flesh, and they are bound together by a Promise, a commitment. They're united together as one flesh, as a testimony to God's word and his work in their lives. So we see what a covenant is and what Jesus is talking about here. It's really a DTR, it's what defines the relationship. There's already a relationship, there's already this unity, there's already two who are bound or bonded together. But the covenant is what defines the relationship publicly and sets the boundaries and explains to everyone what this relationship is all about. Now in a world that hates and denies the righteous rule of the one true God and King, God's covenants are His public testimony and His witness of His love And his unity with those he's redeemed. Those he's saved. Those he's bound to himself by a promise. And we think as believers about inviting Jesus into our heart. And we think about my personal relationship with Jesus. And we might even say Jesus is my king and my friend. And we might even pray to him. But brothers and sisters, do we think of ourselves as bound together with God and Christ? Bound by a promise. Bound by His promise. In a committed relationship. Just like a marriage. And as we think about that, brothers and sisters... I hope it starts to change about how we think about our relationship with the Lord. That it is not private, it is not strictly personal, and it affects more than just me. We see that God testifies, and he testifies very publicly through his covenant, who belongs to him. And those who enter into covenant by faith with God They enter and they respond and they receive. And when God proposes, they say, I do. And they come into that relationship with God by faith. They, by entering into this covenant, are publicly saying, I no longer belong to the world. There's been leaving and cleaving. It's cut off. My king and my Lord is now the God of the Bible. My king and my Lord is now Jesus Christ. I belong entirely to him. We're one, we're united by a promise. And this, brothers and sisters, is the testimony of God's covenant throughout the scriptures. First, as we walk through, we see it with Noah. And then we see it with Abraham in Genesis 15. And we see it with the children of Israel in Exodus and Deuteronomy, what we just read from this morning. And we see it with King David and God's covenant with King David in 2 Samuel. And as we come to Matthew 26, 26, with Jesus and Jesus' disciples, Jesus is proclaiming the arrival of the new covenant promised in Jeremiah 31 and 32. He's proclaiming the arrival of this unity, this covenant between God and Jesus' disciples that's made possible and ratified by his blood, that is to be shed for the forgiveness of sins on the cross. And it's with this covenant of the cross the disciples are united with God in Christ. They belong entirely to Him because of what He has done, because the fulfillment of His promise, because of the forgiveness of sins that He gives, not because of anything that we bring to the table. And it is this covenant of the cross that now defines the relationship and it defines their calling we are, where we spend our time, what we do, what we're devoted to, the priorities in our life. Just like a couple when they get married, and apparently you ladies talked about this yesterday, right? What is it that changes? Everything changes, because there's a new life that's defined by this covenant, And with the covenant of the cross that Jesus is proclaiming to his disciples. And that now defines their lives. The calling that comes with that is to bear witness to this relationship. To bear witness to the new king and to the new kingdom that we're part of. What would it be like Julie and I get married? And the testimony of my life is I'm still bound to my parents or my single friends or all my single hobbies and habits that I had before I got married. It's a testimony to who is king and what's ruling my life and what's the new relationship. Well, there is no new relationship. And the beauty and the good news of the covenant, brothers and sisters, is it instructs us and shows us how we can celebrate and enjoy And bear witness. Like a new bride or a new groom. I'm married to him. And brothers and sisters, this is our calling. Our calling is to enjoy our relationship with our new king and our new lord. In our new house, our new household, the church of God. In a new kingdom. With new in-laws. Okay? but with an entirely new life. And our lives are to bear witness to that wherever we go, our place of work, our marriages, our families. And you've been there and you know it at times when someone gets saved and suddenly everybody in the job knows that there's something new. Everybody in their circle of friends knows that there's something new. And at its best, There is a joy and a thrill and a delight in being devoted to things that they weren't devoted to before and letting go of things that they used to spend their time in. And it's not a chore and a burden, it's a joy and a sweetness. And brothers and sisters, this is the gift that Christ through the covenant of the cross gives us that we're able to share with others. We have a Savior and King who has forgiven us past, present, and future of all our ugliness. He has washed us. He has made us new. And whatever we lack to make this relationship work, he has given us to the fullest. Our calling, brothers and sisters, then, as we're going to learn this morning, is to be faithful and fruitful in this relationship. And this is what John teaches in John 15 as he shares Jesus' words the night before he was crucified. That our calling, as Jesus explains, is to be faithful and fruitful in him. If you have your Bibles, please turn with me to John chapter 15. John chapter 15, and we'll read together verses 1 through 17. And really, this is our first point and the primary point for today is Christ calls his disciples to be faithful and fruitful in him maybe if i can have my first slide there that would be helpful christ calls his disciples to be fruitful and faithful in him or faithful and fruitful in him john 15 verse 1 i am the true vine and my father is the vine dresser every branch in me that does not bear fruit he takes away And that your fruit should abide. So that whatever you ask the Father in my name. He may give it to you. These things I command you. So that you will love one another. This is the word of the Lord. What is the greatest witness, brothers and sisters? That Jesus is alive. That Jesus is the crucified and risen Lord. That Jesus is the king of all. Is it how much. Bible and scripture you've memorized. Or you know. Is it. How you discipline your children. Is it the programs that we have at the church. Is it a movement. That attracts much attention. What is it that bears witness. To the reality that Christ. Is indeed the crucified and risen Lord of all. Well, according to Jesus here in John 15, it is His holy life and love overflowing in your life and mine. That is the greatest witness. That He is indeed who He says He is, and He is present in us. What is, brothers and sisters, the greatest gift we can give one another? What is the greatest gift we can give our children? What is the greatest gift we can give our spouses? What is the greatest gift we can give to anyone? Well, we can list any number of different things. But according to Jesus, it's His life and it's His love. This is the greatest gift. Brothers and sisters, is this what we give our spouses? Is this what we give our children? Is this what we give to anyone who walks through the doors here? Is this what we give to our co workers? This is our calling. It is a faithful and fruitful life in Christ. But, brothers and sisters, we can't give what we don't have. And Jesus here shows us there's only one way anyone can bear witness to this holy life and love. In fact, as we have gone through the Sermon on the Mount, that's what Jesus is describing. All the beatitudes, all the aspects of a moral and righteous character. It's all a reflection or a demonstration of who he is, his holy life and love. And there's only one way, Jesus points out here, that we're able to do this. It's by being one with Christ. It's about having a vital union with him as our Lord and King. It's as a church where Christ is the bridegroom indeed. We live in a time, and era where we want to cover this up by how much we serve and how big the programs are and how many people we can attract to an event and what we can do. And we have all these things to try and make it look like there are signs in life. And you look back over the last 20 or 30 years and you see the Christian movements that have come and they have gone. But brothers and sisters, after the smoke clears, there's only one thing that matters. This vital union, this vital relationship with our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And as Jesus points out, faithfulness and fruitfulness begins not with us. It begins with Christ. It begins with His Spirit and His Word, His life and love in us. And that, brothers and sisters, is the good news of the gospel. It's the good news as we think about any, every family, every relationship, everything that we do. The testimony that we don't have enough to hold it together, but Christ does. And when he's present in our lives, there is a righteousness, there is a love, there's a goodness, a perfection we don't have that he brings into our lives. And his love indeed covers a multitude of sins. And this is what Jesus explains to his disciples in John 15 the night before he's going to be crucified, after the Lord's table or the Lord's supper is instituted, and after Judas departs and is gone to betray Jesus. In verses 1 through 3, Jesus begins, not with what the disciples can offer. He doesn't begin with how gifted they are in their instruments or their singing or their preaching. Oh, Peter, you are an excellent preacher. That's not where he begins. He doesn't go and say, hey, you guys are great fishermen. Matthew, you're a great tax collector and you're going to be able to be the accountant for this new church. We're going to have lots of money, Matthew, if you're the one who's handling the finances. Jesus begins with who he is, according to God's word. And what he has done in their lives with his word. And the scripture metaphor that he uses to sum this all up is the metaphor of the fruitful vine. And the fruitful vine is found first or alluded to in Genesis 1 where God's creation begins or in those Genesis chapter 1 with the creation of trees bearing fruit. And it continues with God blessing and commanding the first man and woman, to be fruitful and to multiply and to fill the earth with God-given life. And it continues in the law with Joseph and Judah in Genesis 49, both being connected to being fruitful vines. And then we go to Psalm 1, and it talks about blessed is the man, right? Who cuts off those relationships with the wicked and the unrighteous. Has no connection with them whatsoever. But his delight is in the law of the Lord. He is like what? A tree planted by streams of water. Then we go on to Isaiah. The fruitful vine. And the fruitful vineyard. And we go to Jeremiah. Jeremiah 17. And it comes up over and over and over again. And through God's word, God uses this metaphor of the fruitful vine. Where fruit is the testimony and proof of God's love and his life and his blessing in us. And the fruitful vine is the channel of God's life and love and blessing. And from Adam and Eve to the children in Israel, this was the calling of God's old covenant people. They were to be his fruitful vine, they were to be his channel of life and love and blessing that would call the world to repentance and bring them back to God and fill their lives with the life and the love and the blessing of God. Through Abraham and his covenant with Abraham, Abraham was to be a blessing to the nations. God's call for his people, that they would fill his kingdom and his creation spiritually and physically with his fruit. His life, his love, and his blessing. That's what fruit is. Now this is the time of the year when stone fruit comes in. If you're in the Chin household, you know that one of the members is obsessed with stone fruit. Asked his spouse, can you go to the farmer's market? There's a particular stand. And they have peaches. Or cherries from particular farms and particular areas. Because these ones are the good ones. And when you taste it, you know those are coming from good trees. I had a very sweet Japanese medical student from the Fresno Valley areas. Family were farmers. And I asked him, I said, you know what? When I go to the supermarkets and I grab a peach, I sink my teeth into it. It's like eating cardboard. What's, What's the deal? What's the issue? It's not really, it looks like a peach, but it's not really a peach. I'll never go there again. My standards have fallen since. But, and he explained to me, he said, look, we breed and we make a certain type of peach to fill supermarket shelves so that they look nice and they last a long time. The really sweet ones, they're different trees. And we shipped, and back in the 80s, they used to ship those over to Asia. Because those were the folks who used to pay high, high, high price. And now it's basically the expensive restaurants that come for those peaches that really taste like peaches. And bear witness that they indeed come from a peach tree. Brothers and sisters, our lives were meant to be fruitful. That when people interact, they taste and see that the Lord is good. That they come in. And they behold and say there's something different about this branch. It's connected to a different root and a different vine than everything else. And that there's lasting from that fruit that comes a seed that gets planted. And life is given. Sustenance is given. People are given life. They are fed. They are nourished. They are strengthened. And life is given. It's not all about. Us. And as you walk through the Old Testament, God's lament that He expresses through the prophets is that humanity and then God's old covenant people are a fruitless vine. The fruit they produce is bitter and poisonous. Why is that? It's everything we've talked about in the Sermon on the Mount. They have unfaithful hearts, they have idolatrous hearts. They feed and they worship on poisonous streams. They are filled with sinful desires. They have departed from the God who they publicly say we're bound to, we're married to, but in their hearts they are far from the Lord. There is no true union with God. There is no true love. It is a dead marriage like a couple who still live in the same house but are sleeping in separate bedrooms, don't talk to one another, function as roommates. And everybody can see and everybody knows when you interact, hey, they've got a certificate, but this is dead. There is no fruit. Brothers and sisters, does your life reflect... A vital union and intimacy that is proven by fruitfulness in your life. And this is why God in mercy and in love sends his only begotten son into this dying world. Adam and Eve didn't do it. Israel did not do it. The kings of Israel did not do it. The prophets beg and beg. So God himself comes. His beloved son comes. To take what we've broken and made wrong and to make it right and to be the true vine. The channel of God's love and his life and his blessing. Which is not a pastor and not a program and not a church. It's Christ. And in verse 1 he explains, I myself emphatically am not a vine. I am the true vine. And then Jesus explains how this works in God's kingdom economy. There are two types of branches in this world and in this life. Those who are truly bound to Christ and those who look like they're bound to Christ. There are Judas's and there are Peter's. And he says his father is in charge of everything. His father knows. We might not be able to see, but his father knows. His father is the vine dresser. And he takes away, or prunes, he takes away and cuts, present, ongoing. It means God is continually watching over his vineyard. It goes on. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit. Now who's Jesus talking to right now? Eleven disciples minus one. Judas has left to betray Jesus. And then he says every, no exception, branch that does bear fruit. Every branch that does bear fruit. What does God do? He's coming for you. Now God's coming for you one way or the other. You take your choice. You can be trash or you can get his pruning. And that word prune literally means to clean. Catharo, from which we get catharsis. And it's the idea that he's coming to clean us up. How? By cutting off what is dead and rotting in our lives. This is what Jesus is referring to and commanding with radical amputation. Our sinful desires, our sinful relationships, our sinful preoccupations, our sinful words, all of these things. And he's pointing out, what is it that separates us from Christ? What is it that takes away our fruitfulness? It's anything that's contrary to the heart of God. And God in love is going to come to those who are already fruitful. And he's going to look over and say, okay, you've been fruitful. You've been faithful. I'm going to come in and I'm going to clean. Now, God is gracious. He does not do more than what we can bear or handle. And he does it progressively. Nonetheless, he does it. And the more we resist, the harder the hand we'll get. But why does he do this? His desire, brothers and sisters, is that your life would not just be fruitful, but more fruitful. And that out of your life would come even more blessing and life and love that comes from above. And verse 8, Jesus summarizes this By this my Father is glorified. How do we glorify God? Singing really loud. Giving lots of money, building missions with our names on it, having lots of short-term missions. Look, we need to do those things. We need to do short-term missions. We need to sing. But the heart of the issue, brothers and sisters, our Father is glorified, not by our fireworks. By this, my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit. And so prove to be my disciples. So how's your fruit? Well, in verse 3 through 9, Jesus explains the key to true fruitfulness. As we said, it's not a flurry of our activity. Very specifically, he's referring to here a clean relationship with Christ. A clean relationship with Christ. It's a vital union and connection with Christ that begins with his gospel word and work in us. I don't know if any of you recall the old days with hard lines where you would call overseas. And you get all this static depending on how the connection was. Sometimes you'd have to hang up and call again, right? Because you can't hear because of the hiss or whatever it is. It's not a clean connection, right? And Jesus points out with the verses and three onwards, he's pointing out to them, look, There's only one way for a clean connection, a vital union. Christ himself must make us clean. We can't do it ourselves. If we're going to be truly fruitful, Christ has to come in and he has to clean our lives. And praise God, the good news of the gospel is he does this. This is what Christ, verse 3, has already done for his disciples. How? By speaking his word into their lives. Brothers and sisters, what is it that saves our lives? What is it that saved you? Was it someone putting money in an offering plate somewhere? Was it a program? Well, according to Paul in 1 Corinthians, what saves us is the word of the cross, it's the gospel. That is the power of God for salvation for all men. If you're truly saved, if you're truly connected with Christ, it is the same word that created the world in six days that has come into your life and changed your heart and taken what was hard and softened it and cleaned it and taken off all the garbage on the outside. And on the inside too. And giving you a heart that can finally see and behold. Yes, I am a sinner. Yes, God is alive. Yes, Christ has died for my sins. I need to be with him. Not in all of these other places. And Jesus is pointing out it is his word, his teaching, his truth. In the lives of the disciples that has come. And that has saved them and has cleaned them and made them whole. That's why Jesus, when he prays for his disciples in a few chapters later, John 17, 17, he says, Sanctify them, clean them, sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. It's why Sunday morning when we gather together, we're here for a gospel proclamation. Not a list of do's and don'ts. Our calling is to proclaim what God has done to save sinners through the death and resurrection of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. To call sinners to repentance. Our call here is you come in from the work week. When you labor in a world that's all about what you do to get your bonus and to get rewarded. You come in and you are here to be cleaned with the truth that Christ has done everything that you need to be right with God. And when you struggle and have a hard week with the children or in your marriage, you come in to be washed by the word, to be shown what you need Christ has given. There is forgiveness, there is grace, there is mercy, but in one place, one place alone, and on his terms, not ours. And this, brothers and sisters, is what renews our hearts and renews our minds and reconnects us as that crusty connection gets restored by the power of the gospel and Christ's word, Christ speaking into our lives. And when there's conflicts in a marriage, what do we need, brothers and sisters, when the communication is broken? It's not explaining ourselves again and again and again. I've tried that. Julia will let you know. It doesn't work. What we so desperately need is for the loudest voice in the room to be Christ's. What we need is to be able to listen to what he has to say about our marriage and our conflict and the challenges before us. Brothers and sisters, the fastest way to a fruitless life is an unclean heart that stops listening to Christ and stops listening to the gospel and believes that we can fix it ourselves. And when do we typically do this, brothers and sisters? We do this when we're busy with other things. We're busy with work. We're busy with social media. We're busy with entertainment. We're busy with sports. And when we're so filled up with this rather than the word of the Lord, what do we do? We turn the gospel off. And is it any surprise that our hearts wander, brothers and sisters? And so Jesus, in mercy and love, he gives his non-negotiable command, Abide in me. Abide, ongoing, not to abide in Christ, brothers and sisters, is sin. It's a divine command. And from verses 4 through 16, Jesus uses this word abide no less than nine times. The two words that come up over and over again are abide and fruit, abide and fruit, abide and fruit, fruit eight times, abide nine times. How important is this? To abide means to stay connected. It means to stand fast. It means not to depart. It means to be faithful. And the words that we get from this word abide in Greek refer to patience, endurance, perseverance. And Jesus is pointing out He is already faithful, He is already fruitful. This is the God who has saved us. A faithful and fruitful God. The testimony of that is the cross. It bears witness that God always keeps his promises. His love is steadfast and sure. And so our calling is to remain with him. To be faithful as our God is faithful. To stay in this relationship. Not to depart from it. To stand fast, even when there's resistance and pressure. To persevere, to endure, to wait upon the Lord. There's all this talk, right? In the playoff series. You can't let go of the rope. What happened? Well, we let go of the rope for one quarter. We understand that in sports, what that means. But brothers and sisters, even more so in our relationship with Christ. If this is the most precious thing in our lives, how closely do we have to cling to it? Husbands, how valuable are your wives? Do you cling to them? How valuable are your children? Do you cling to them? How valuable is our relationship with Christ? Do we cling to him? We tell our boys when they were little, Hey, we're going to go wherever. You can go where you want, but don't let us out of your sight. And when we couldn't trust them, we would go and hold their hands. Right? We cling to what's valuable. And the flip side of this, brothers and sisters, how long does a plant last when you remove the light and you remove the water? And the same is true in our marriages our relationships, our families, our ministries, and our witness. In verse 4, Jesus says, Abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Brothers and sisters, how often do we get it reversed? And we think we're the vine and Jesus is the branch. That what's holding everything together is us. And we're the one who's making it go. And we get discouraged when we can't keep up. And we see that we have it all backwards. And here's the good news. Jesus says, whoever abides in me and I in him. He it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers, and the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire and burned. And, brothers and sisters, that is a promise from God. Why? He loves his people, he is faithful, and he is fruitful. And he is faithful to his promise that his children will be fruitful. Well, what is this fruit that glorifies God? In verses 7 through 17, Jesus shows us. It's his life. It is fellowship with Christ. It is his love. It is his joy. It is his disciples. It is a life that is never separated from Christ, but is faithful and as he goes on to point out, it's a life that is expressed through faithful prayer and obedience to Christ's commands. And this brings us to our second point for this morning. Faithfulness involves keeping Christ's commands. Faithfulness involves keeping Christ's commands. In the chapter before this, in John 14, verse 15, Jesus says, If you love me, you will keep my commandments. Now, you show me a life. Without faithful prayer and obedience to Christ's commands. The very first command being repent and follow me. And I'll show you a life regardless of how much Bible knowledge. A life that is without the life and love of Christ. You show me a life of faithful prayer and obedience to Christ's commands. And I will show you a life that's filled with the life and love of Christ. Obedience, brothers and sisters, and faithful prayer are two of the tests of a genuine and vital relationship with Christ. Now, brothers and sisters, let's be clear. We don't pray and obey to earn Christ's love. The point that Jesus makes in this passage is we pray and we obey because Christ loves us and because we love him. And faithful prayer and obedience to Christ's commands. Really what it's all about. It's about being with the one we love. Jesus says, if you abide, if you remain and continue, verse 7, in me. and my words abide, they remain and continue in you. Ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. And here Jesus draws a direct connection between abiding, not departing from Jesus and not departing from his words, his teaching, his truth, his instructions and his commands. Brothers and sisters, faithfulness as God shows it. How is God faithful in your life? He does what he says he's going to do. He doesn't depart from his word. The promises that he makes. Even if it costs him his son on the cross. He is going to keep his promise. And Christ is showing the disciples. This is the life I have given you. Abide. Remain. Continue. Exemplify. How? By not departing from the words that saved you, the words that cleaned you, the words that gave you life. My words, my instructions, my commands. In Matthew, in the Sermon on the Mount, chapter 7, he talks about the foolish man. Hears the word of God, but does not obey it. And then he talks about the wise man who builds his house on the rock. Those who don't just hear and come and listen to a sermon, but they actually do it. And they obey Christ's words. He's like the wise man who builds his house on the rock. And the storms come and that house continues to stand. And so he exhorts his disciples. Don't depart from the word that has saved you. Let me ask you a question. How much do I love Julie if I never listen to her? How faithful would I be to a wife who I do not listen to? I'm too busy taking care of the kids, preparing sermons. I have all these people to counsel at church. Christ... He's exhorting his disciples in love because he loves us with his word. When his teaching and his truth clings to us, when it has a hold on our lives, when it has a hold on our hearts, where does it take us? It takes us, brothers and sisters, to the cross. It brings us to a place where it brings us to the end of ourselves, but the beginning of Christ. And it shows us at the foot of the cross that everything we truly need to be right with God and to live and have a heart filled with true love, Christ has already provided for us. It brings us to a place of humble dependence on His grace and not our strength. It brings us to a place of sweet fellowship with our crucified and risen Lord. Brothers and sisters, this is God's desire for your life, that you would have that fellowship with Christ, that you would know His grace, and that you would realize, yes, you don't have what it takes, but He's more than happy to give it on His term, not ours. And this, brothers and sisters, is what faithful prayer is. It's a humble dependence on God's grace. It's a sweet fellowship with Christ. Brothers and sisters, when you draw near in prayer, when you come in prayer, do you enjoy the sweetness of coming close to Christ, of having Him speak into your life, of His Spirit ministering to you, the joy and delight that you are in a position that the world does not know. To feel the breath of the creator of the universe. Throughout Jesus' gospel ministry. Where did Jesus find rest? Where did he find strength as a man? By abiding in his father's love through faithful prayer. This is where he would go. He would disappear. He would go to have a night of prayer. He would set himself apart for a night of prayer. To have fellowship with the spirit and the father. And what did Jesus pray for? will be thy name. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done. He prayed for faithfulness in everything. Faithfulness in getting his daily bread. Faithfulness in his love and care and forgiveness of others who had sinned against him. Faithfulness in abiding on God's grace and God's fellowship. And brothers and sisters, this is what prayer is. Prayer is faithfulness and abiding and depending on God's grace and fellowship, not our giftedness for his glory and our strength. It's an expression of faith in God, not us. Where does the power come from, brothers and sisters? To have faithful lives, faithful relationships, faithful marriages, faithful ministries. It comes from a faithful God. It doesn't come from unfaithful sinners like you and I? And why don't we pray, brothers and sisters, like Jesus? If we're honest, it's because we don't desire his fellowship. We desire someone else's fellowship. I'm fortunate. I don't desire the fellowship of the Los Angeles Lakers these days. We don't desire His fellowship. We desire someone else's fellowship. We don't pray because we don't see the need for His grace. I can fix it myself until I can't. Right? And then we get discouraged and then we despair. We don't pray because we're too busy. Because we don't believe Jesus will make a difference. And when we do this, brothers and sisters, and I'm there too, we depart from His Word. That He is the vine and we are the branches and apart from Him, we can do what? Nothing. So what do we do? Our prayer lives, brothers and sisters, are a barometer of our relationship with Christ and what we value most where do we get a prayer life from? We listen to his word. We see our lives in light of his word. We obey his commands that begin with repent and we come back to him in prayer. And when our hearts are united with Christ, his will and his word, God promises to hear and answer the desires of. Of faithful hearts. Delight in the Lord. And he will give you the desires of your heart. And what is the heart's desire. Of a husband who loves his wife. It's faithfulness. Lord would I be faithful to my wife. What is the heart. And desire of a father. Who loves his children. That he would be faithful to his children. And his children would be faithful to him. And through this faithfulness. They will be brought to unity. And love and joy. That's expressed. In an obedience to the Word of God. And in verses 9 through 17, Jesus shows his disciples and us obedience to his Word is the fruit of his love and Word in us. Where Christ's love abides in us, where his Word abides in us, brothers and sisters, there is a desire to be faithful regardless of the cost, and there is a power. To carry on and obey and submit. Because we begin to see that what God calls us to obey. Is simply his direction. Of how to draw near to him. He says in verse 10. If you keep my commandments present ongoing not one and done. You will abide in my love. And as we look back in verse 9, the verse before, Jesus shows us where this begins. It begins with Christ loving us as the Father has loved him. Loving us with what's referred to as hesed, A faithful love. A love that comes and endures and gives and sacrifices and lays down its life. Because Jesus goes on to show us. What is this love? Well, greater love has no man, right? Than the one who lays down his life for his friends. Brothers and sisters, when we disobey Christ's command, when we do so intentionally or unintentionally, well, I didn't know any better. I tell my boys, whether you knew it was wrong, do Walk across this street or not where there's not a traffic light. You might not have known, but if you get hit by a car, it doesn't make any difference. When you walk away from Christ's commands, intentionally or unintentionally. We are walking away from God's will. We're walking away from his fellowship. We're walking away from his love. And that's Adam and Eve. But where there is faithfulness and obedience to God's word, there is an abiding in Christ's love and there's a joy that abounds. And what is this joy? It's the joy of God, brothers and sisters. And what is it that gives God the greatest joy? When there's one sinner who repents, the testimony of God's grace in our hearts and in our lives. And we see that God's desire for us, brothers and sisters, as he walks us through this, his heart's desire is that your hearts would be filled with the joy of Christ. And what is the joy of Christ? It's a celebration of God's love and grace for us, his unmerited favor in Christ. It's a celebration of sinners coming to repentance. It's the celebration of sinners being restored and being united with Christ so this brings us to our final point for this morning fruitfulness points to Christ in us fruitfulness points to Christ in us plain and simple this call to obey this call for faithful prayer that God gives us he's doing it because this is where his Love and his joy abounds. That faithfulness in obeying God. And faithfulness in prayer and drawing near. Drawing near and obeying. That's what it's about at the heart. It really is simply a child holding the hand of the parent who loves them. As they walk together. That's what this is about. And as we do so and people see, oh. This is who is with you. This is who is walking with you. This is who's paying the bills. This is who's looking out for you. We see that this fruitfulness in our lives, a life of obedience to Christ, a life filled with his joy, a life that displays his grace, a life that draws sinners to repentance and faith in him. Ultimately, brothers and sisters, it glorifies God because it points, not to us, but it points to our Lord and Savior who is faithful and fruitful and loves us with what's referred to as hesed, a covenant love. A love that will never fail. A perfect and holy love. This is what this is all about. And then this becomes the disciples joy. That as I go through life it's no longer about me it's about Christ and that's what people see. Brothers and sisters, there's only one thing that we have to share or give that's worth anything. As a church, is it the church building? Is it your pastor? Is it the praise team? Is it the AV team? No, it's none of those things. There's only one thing of any worth when people come through this door and when they walk out. Have they received Christ? Have they received his life and love? And they've been brought to the place to repent and turn from their sins and place their faith in Christ because He's worth it. And Jesus points out, when fruit like this abounds in your life, the world will take notice. Sinners will be saved. You are to go and you are to bear witness and you are to have fruit and you are to be light and salt in a world that's dying. The result, Jesus explains in 1518. He says, if the world hates you, you know that it has hated me before it hated you. You're going to receive hate. But we are blessed because we have fellowship with Christ. And sinners will be saved. And we will see and we will know firsthand. As the Apostle Paul said, that Christ is worth all of it. Let's close in prayer. Lord Jesus, you are worth everything and you are worth celebrating. How we need to enjoy what you have done in our lives, but how desperately we need to cling to you. May we do both this summer as we come into a season with many distractions and many things. Lord Jesus, may we enjoy all that you've given us. But most of all, may we delight and enjoy our fellowship with you. In your name we pray, amen.